All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 14. Um, we, I'm sorry, I, I skipped to the end. You guys got excited, didn't you? Um, Josh, you're going to have to do something because our sound man is absent at the critical moment. Um, all right, uh, so we're actually in Hosea chapter 11. And, uh, and you guys have asked a bunch of great questions um, that I'll address a little bit. I've addressed them with those folks. And I'm sure if some people had the questions and others may have had them as well as we've been going through the book of Hosea. Um, and uh, so I'll address a couple of things as we go along. Um, a couple of things just in terms of, uh, as many of you have felt, anytime we do uh, a minor prophet or really any thing much from the Old Testament, there's a sense in which at some point in the series, we just start to feel kind of weary, right? That we just kind of feel like, wow, this is heavy, right? The Old Testament is kind of a, is a, is a very heavy book, but remember where it is looking and where it is going. It is all pointing to Jesus. And those hard and heavy words are good for us to hear sometimes because I think we forget where we come from and where we're going. And so if you're feeling a little bit of that heaviness and you're about ready for Hosea to be done and uh, us to move on to something in the New Testament, you're right where you need to be. You should be kind of feeling the weight of the heaviness of the brokenness of Israel and how much the brokenness of Israel mirrors us and our culture today and our current circumstances and situations and maybe even us personally. And what's interesting is that this chapter is probably the most provocative. It is probably the heaviest chapter of all, which is a terrible way to start introduction-wise. By the way, you're probably thinking, what's on the internet? For those of you who think the internet's still a thing, that it hasn't ended yet, who won't turn in your email addresses, says Jennifer, there's not that many people who don't believe the internet's gonna make it, so I think we're fine on that one. Um, But you may be thinking, why do I want to listen to this? But the reason that it's the most provocative, the reason that it's the heaviest is because it speaks of God's grace, right? And grace is often the thing that we wrestle with the most. Think about how the church throughout history has swung between this legalism and gracelessness onto the other side of cheap grace, licentiousness, or antinomianism is the famous term, that, that we just swing between these poles because we just can't seem to put it in a box and we just can't seem to make the math simple. We want simple math. But let me tell you why you don't want simple math. A couple of things. What if every time you sinned, God immediately dealt with that sin in you? For instance, like say if you weren't paying attention to the sermon and, and, and I don't know if that's even a sin, not paying attention to God's word, um, your head caught on fire so that we all knew, oh, Phil's not paying attention again. His head's on fire, right? Or if you looked at something that you shouldn't be looking at, the Lord was so gracious just to pop one of your eyes out of your head so it would dangle on your cheek so everybody could go, yep, there's Robbie looking at stuff you ought not be looking at, Right? So that's simple math, that you sin, God acts. Or, thought of it another way, what if, what if the offering that you bring is not near as great as you think it is? Right, so there's a presupposition that we often have that whatever it is that we're doing ought to be acceptable to the Lord, who happens to be holy, by the way, and only accepts one offering, Christ himself. And why? 
because Christ himself was perfect, which we fail to be outside of union with Christ. So be careful that what you're asking for, that simple math, doesn't presuppose that you got more going for you than you do. Be careful that you don't recognize that that simple math is really not good for you. It's actually in God's great grace. We've seen it in terms of his, how he's dealt with Israel, right? Remember who Israel is. Let's not forget, this is not a group of people who are casual about their sin. This is not a group of people who are, don't know what's going on. They're ignorant of what's going on. Remember who they are. They're the 10 tribes who said, we do not want to be part of the covenant with David. We don't. And we want our own worship center. We want to worship golden calves. We want to do what we want to do, and we want it to be syncretistic and all-inclusive and relative and contextual and starting to sound like our culture. Remember, it was Jeroboam I who said, I'm going to set all these things up because I... I want to be seen as king, not David. I want to break away from the clutches of the sovereign God. And everyone who came after him, right? We read this from 2 Kings again and again and again. Every king who comes after follows in the sin of Jeroboam the first, willfully. And God is not silent for 200 years. God speaks into their context this last 30 particularly through the prophet Hosea. And look at what he did. Look at what he asked Hosea to do. They were so hard of hearing. They were so hard of heart that the Lord said, maybe, maybe an enacted prophecy could turn them to me. So he calls Hosea to marry Gomer to show them who they really were so they couldn't say they had not seen or heard or any of these things. So God in great grace has warned them. And notice how he has progressively removed things from them, right? Without, without the guillotine of judgment falling in full, which means eternal death and eternal separation or eternal wrath of God. Instead, what he has done is taken things away piece by piece to try to draw them back to him. And he's done so because of that incredible pathos that we are so uncomfortable with. And this chapter is going to say a couple things about God that we're just not comfortable with, especially as Reformed folks. It doesn't fit in the box of simple math, but it seems to fit within the confines of Scripture. And so as we step into this, there's a question that I have for you, as I often do. And this is a great question for you to consider because, because I think we all, and don't give the party line answer, but really think about your own heart here. But what is it that you feel like you deserve at this point in your life? What do you think you really deserve? And this is from our five-year-olds all the way on up uh, to, to those of you who are in the 70 and 80 range. Every one of us if we think about it, act and function with a, some form of entitlement, some more biblical than others, but all of us think we deserve something, right? If you have siblings, right? You, if you're child two, three, or depending on how many there are, and some of you have a number of them, but you're, if you're child two or three, somewhere in there, you think that you ought to be able to drive when your oldest sibling drives, 
Never mind the fact that you're like 12 and you can't reach the pedals. You ought to be able to stay out as late as your oldest sibling. No, you have not yet earned that right. You don't deserve that. In fact, you'll receive it when the time comes, when it is your time to receive it, right? We all, I mean, if you've had brothers and sisters, you understand this. I'm an only child, uh, but I grew up under different circumstances that were awful, so never mind all that. But we think we deserve things. If you're single, how many of you are struggling with what it is you think you deserve at this point? How long, oh Lord? How long? We cry. And yet in his perfect timing, do we trust him? Do we in faith trust him? For those of you who have a job that you're just not that crazy about and you think you ought to be getting promotions left and right, that the, those above you just don't seem to have the vision to see your greatness because you've shown up late and left early to make up for it. Right? I mean, we, we as parents, what do we think we deserve in terms of the behavior of our children? I have done everything right. Let me pause right there. How true can that possibly be in a fallen world based on our own brokenness, even though we be in union with Christ, not yet arrived? And yet we say, I deserve, I have done, I have, why is my offering not translating? Why is X not producing Y? Why is the math just not simple? And in that, saying that, we are essentially saying that the Lord doesn't know what he's doing and that we somehow in our finiteness know so much better than the creator and that we, we deserve simple math. And I hope that you realize, no, you don't want simple math. I remember when I was um, coming up and, and thinking I was hearing the call to ministry. And man, I thought I was ready I don't know, uh, nine or 10 years ago. Um, and I was so upset with the opportunities that just weren't coming. And I kept seeing all these other people that were doing it and making a mockery of God, it felt like to me, which was a genuine struggle. And the Lord wasn't producing or providing opportunities. The only thing I got to do was go and preach to the poor old people down at the rescue mission who had no choice but to listen to me. You have a choice. They didn't. Now, what am I saying about those folks at the rescue mission versus anything else that the Lord would have called me to do? And I am so thankful that he did not put me in a position of full-time ministry because I'd have had no idea what I'm doing, what I was doing, because at current, I have no idea what I am doing for the most part and am learning that, praise God, he didn't give me what I wanted when I thought I needed it. Praise God that he let me continue in the marketplace and see my boss who called me the other day Come to Christ. There's eternal, there was eternal value in those five or six years. I got to be a part of that. What a gift. Wouldn't trade it for anything. And yet we think, we think we know better that God ought to give us what we want when we want it and how we want it and based on our demands. And yet, remember from last week, he said, I will discipline you in my time. And that actually is a statement of great grace. He was saying, I'm not going to be immediate here. You still have time to repent and return to me, the Lord your God. So I want you to think, what is it you think you deserve? 
And remember, as what we've been hearing about Israel, at this point, what do we think they deserve? After all they've been through and all the things they've done, at this point, you would think, let the hammer fall. Those jokers deserve some fierce judgment. And that's what's so provocative about the placement of this chapter. Because God's going to say, that is not what I will do. That is not what I will do. How can I give you up? And so as we turn to the text, please recognize just how truly provocative grace is and don't presume upon it and please don't cheapen it and recognize it for the thing that God decides. We don't decide the parameters of his grace. We don't decide the parameters of his judgment. We don't decide the parameters of his love and praise God that we don't because we are so limited and foolish and we need in humility to recognize that. So let us look at verses one through seven, as we look at the reflections on God's grace in the Exodus and Israel's apostasy. And what we're gonna see here in this chapter, just real quick, you're gonna see a breakdown. He's gonna, God's gonna speak to the past, the present, and their future. We're gonna look at the past and the present in the first piece, and then the future in the second piece. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness, with bands of love, And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise, up, raise them up at all. So here, God is pointing back to the Exodus to remind them of who he is and who he sees them to be. Remember who they were. Israel is in Egypt, not yet really even a nation. Uh, they, they don't have the law. They don't have anything but these stories of, of, of creation and Abram and Abraham and, and Isaac. They have the Genesis stories maybe floating about and they have this leader that they're not real sure they can trust because he killed somebody, right? And it just doesn't look great. And they're being told to do more with less. And the more they prosper, the angrier Pharaoh grows, And they are crying out just because they don't know what else to do because oppression has become so strong upon them. And the Lord responds, remember how beautifully he responds, plague after plague as he deconstructs the Egyptian theology and lays waste to all of their gods. It's important that we know in Isaiah, he says very clearly he did that because not only did he love Israel, but he loved Egypt. Because he also wanted the Egyptians to see that they followed a false god. Because remember, the Abrahamic covenant is not just for the Israelites. It is so that every tongue, tribe, and nation would know the Lord their God. He is one. And he is their God too. Their covenant God. 
So he points back to the Exodus and he reminds them, I am the one who called you out of Egypt. You were no one before I called you. And why does he call them? Got to be at least one Christian in here, just by average. Why does he call them out of Egypt? To be with his people. Why does he send Jesus? To be with his people. Why is Jesus coming back? So that we can dwell with God forever. Right? That's the point of the story. No, that's not a new riff. That's not a new, uh, new idea within the scripture. It has always been for God to be able to dwell with his people. That the holy creator God of the universe would be able to sing praise songs over you. Jesus to testify of you and you to respond to that call. Right? So he says, I called you out so that you could learn to worship and learn who I am. And the more he called, what did they do? The more they ran, the more they went after lovers far less wild. The more that they chase after little token idols that cannot speak, that cannot save them, but that they could control and they could reduce to simple math. And so God continues and he says, how he condescended to them. This is really important because in Christ, we get that God condescends to us. You also need to know that even in the Holy Spirit, God is condescending to us. Is God coming to us? We don't go to him, right? So so God comes to us, he condescends. It says he even bends down toward them. This is why Um, It is so critical that we not be silly in worship, that we not try to make God condescend further than he has chosen to condescend in and of himself. This is why we should not be silly about how we present the gospel. This is why we shouldn't try to make it something that it is not to over contextualize or to reduce it further. Some of you may be thinking the fact that you all have drums the fact that you all, you aren't in a robe, the fact that you are on a stage, and I might grant you some of that argument. But we will go no further. So we need to be careful. That's why we try to think through our worship here at Christ Community Church, that it fits together, that we not, that we not reduce God more than what he was willing to do. That's why Christ is so central to what we do. And notice that he he tells them their current situation, but he says this. And now I have to say that there is a debate about one of these words that is, is, could be fairly important to the understanding. It says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. Some interpretations, some manuscripts actually have, surely they will return to Egypt. But either way, Assyria will be their king. So his point is, is that Pharaoh has been vanquished. He no longer can say that he is God. And he no longer, they're not gonna go back the way they came, right? This exile is different. This exile is not them going backward. It's not as if the exodus is being undone. It's not. And that's good news, actually. And so he makes it very clear that this, this exile, it will be different. And what's interesting in Isaiah, again, is that it says... Part of the reason he does it this way is because he also loves the Assyrians. Now, pay attention. 
What was Israel's original intended purpose? What were they supposed to be? A light to the nations. And what did they do? They kind of repeated Genesis 11. They kind of folded up their tents and turned inward, almost as if they were on the plain of Shinar, making their own little tower of Babel, right? And so they turned inward, and instead of doing what they were called to do, it led to the erosion of the kingdom and the destruction of the people. Now notice what God is doing. God is scattering them so that the gospel would go forward. Notice what happens in the book of Acts when the sword known as Saul comes and strikes at the heart of the apostles themselves. And he actually is able to uh, kill uh, Stephen. What happens then? They're scattered and the gospel goes forward. Now you may say, were they being disobedient? No, but every God uses everything. This is the beauty of his sovereignty that there is nothing, nothing that he cannot use to glorify himself. And so though the people refuse to be a light to the nations, he's gonna scatter them there. And remember, when they go to Assyria, who is one of the key figures that goes into Assyria? Daniel. And what happens in the time that Daniel's there? People witness the beauty of, of essentially what is the gospel being worked out in him, Right? And there are Assyrians who will be in heaven because of that event, because God is gracious and good. Either we will go willingly or he's gonna call us unwillingly. Either way, remember what our purpose is. What's the purpose of the church? Fight culture, right? No. We're to make disciples. If, and that's what's so hard about Psalm 139 is those of you, there's some of you who really cringe when we hit those hate passages. You're like, this doesn't sound very nice. Well, what you should hate is that someone would try to destroy the glory of the Lord. What you should hate is that someone would burn in hell because they don't believe. And that hatred should be turned in Christ into discipleship, not destruction. So church, remember what our call is. Our call is to be a light to the nations. We too are a holy priesthood, as Peter calls us. So God says that your sin will draw the sword, that your disobedience, your unwillingness to hear will draw the sword. And if that's where the Bible ended or the book of Hosea ended, this would be tough. This would be tough. God would still be just, am I right? And no way is, can any of us argue that God is unjust in bringing the sword after 200 years of calling his people. But this is not where it's going to end. And in fact, there's a subtle um, thing that he says that, that should, should call our ear back to the beginning of the book of Hosea. Remember, one of the children was going to be called not my people, right? But if you remember in Hosea 1.10, he quotes essentially the Abrahamic covenant promise and says, that will be fulfilled and you will be my people. That's Hosea 1.10 to 2, 1 or, yeah, 1. And so, so look at what he says in verse 7. He says, my people. My people are bent on turning away. Now that sounds, you may think, why would you make a whole lot out of that? 
Because again, he's reminding them who they are and who he is. And though they are bent on turning away, and he's going to unpack this further, he will not let them go. That is incredibly provocative. That drives us crazy. Because we don't know, all right, how much, how much sin before you commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Right? How, how, how much before you, God just says enough's enough? I don't know. Only he knows. And what I've seen is he's incredibly patient. In fact, he's consistent with who he said he is in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He is long-suffering and patient. That's why there's no simple math. That's why it's good for us that he doesn't exact his justice when it is deserved. And so we have this this picture of God as loving his people in a way that is very different than how Baal supposedly loves those who worship him. If you would give your attention to this, uh, this is from the Old Testament survey, and this makes a great point of highlighting the Exodus versus how Baal loves. He says, Hosea took a certain risk in couching the relationship between Yahweh and his people in terms of love. Let me pause right there. It's true for us today, right? We have such distorted views of love and intimacy and sexuality and all those things. We're so just distorted on that, so hard for us to hear that word and really even know what each of us means by it. You almost have to clarify, wait a minute, what do you mean by love? What are we saying here? It goes on, it says, the Canaanite nature cult put great stress on the erotic nature of the divine human relationship. And the role of physical love in maintaining the order of the universe, Hosea guarded against misunderstanding by his insistence that God's love is best understood not in sexual terms or in the cycles of fertility each spring, but in the redemptive acts of the Exodus. More than passion is involved, there is the deliberate activity of God's will throughout Israel's history, itself a continuity of divine instruction and discipline. So what he's saying there is that this discussion of love is not the tempestuous, passionate, um, unregulated, or, or just uninformed, forced kind of love. It's not, it's not sexual or weird. This, this is covenant love. This is promised love, most displayed in the Exodus event. So let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a situation where God showed you great grace? And then, and then you, you, in essence, ended up responding by spurning his grace with disobedience. How many of us have said, Lord, if you would just X, then I would do Y. And oftentimes, God in great grace does what we ask for. He lets us live, for those of you who are addicts, Right? How many of us have prayed that prayer? Lord, if you just let me live this time, I'll stop. And we didn't. And yet, he didn't give up on us. And I think sometimes that grace that he gave us was a severe mercy to show us just how frail and faulty and unable we are to save ourselves. How many of you as parents have said, God, if you'll just, if you'll just, Make my kid a brain surgeon. If, you, if you'll just make my kid understand geography, 
Some of y'all, it's simpler than that. You're just like, I just want them to understand this subject and get from grade six to seven or whatever it is, right? How many of us have said, Lord, if you'll just, if you'll just do this? And how many times has God been gracious to us and we have presumed upon that grace and we have, we have in essence, trampled underfoot the blood of Christ, as Hebrews 10 would say, and we would be worthy of even worse judgment, and yet we are not the sons and daughters of perdition because God in his unimaginable, unbelievable grace has said, I will not let you go. And yet we must be careful because he does eventually let some go. Hell is populated. And I don't know how that all works and I don't know the when and I don't know the why. It is in his enormous will that I, I, I cannot comprehend. But what I do know is this. He is way more patient than I've ever been. He is way more long-suffering and slow to anger than I have ever, ever exhibited. And my wife should say amen. Right? In the times, it's amazing, in the times I've tried to control myself, and, and would begin to celebrate how good I'm doing, it is amazing how lightning fast it comes undone. It is amazing to me. And it is a severe mercy so that I don't begin to believe any of the hype that I have put up for myself. So if you are in the camp that has presumed upon God's grace and you have um, trampled underfoot the blood of Christ. I've got good news for you. You've got breath in your lungs. You're here. Repent and return to the Lord. And stop thinking that you can't do the means of grace, that you're too weak. Yes, you are, but if you are in union with Christ, if you have the Spirit in you, the means of grace can actually produce fruit. Don't believe the devil's lie. Don't live as if you've never been redeemed. Let's turn back to the text and hear the promise of God's steadfast love for his people in the new Exodus. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Now, one of you did ask the question, what exactly do you mean when you say that we chase after lovers less wild? Well, 
Again, it's, it's language we're uncomfortable with, right? To use the term wild in terms of God, lover in terms of God. That doesn't, that doesn't for, especially for us male reform types, we like a more stoic and distant God uh, who operates according to a systematic and it's clean. God is not always so clean. He does operate according to his will, and he does operate according to his own commandments. He doesn't violate those. But we have a problem in understanding the fullness of what those things are. And the point is this, that if you're going to chase after Baal, who is this hyper-sexualized God, what you need to understand is he will not provide for you. He will not love you near like what Yahweh will do. Because all doesn't exist. He's not there. And, and he will not, as Ephesians puts it, lavish his love upon us like the Lord our God does. The Lord our God lavishes his love upon us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. In and through his means of grace. In the coming of the Holy Spirit. That is lavish. It would be perfectly fair for God to say, listen, I gave you guys one rule, you couldn't keep it. I gave you 10, you couldn't keep them. I expanded it to 667, you couldn't keep them. I reduced it back down to two. You still don't keep them, right? We have ran the gamut and we've just proved again and again, whether it's one or 667, we stink. We are not gonna do it. However, however, God loves us so much that as he said, his heart recoils within him. And you, some of you may be saying, well, that's just anthropomorphic language so that we can understand it's not poetry. No, it's anthropomorphic language that is in fact poetry. And that is good for us that the Lord's heart would recoil in his chest at the thought of destroying and giving us up. How many of you as parents have felt this? When your child, you want to kick them as far as you can kick them. I don't recommend you do that. This is metaphorical language right now. That's poetic language. You want to kick them as far as you could kick them. Out. Away from you. And yet your heart recoils within you. And you realize, I cannot give you up all the way. And God even more so because his is actually pure. Ours often is selfish and idolatrous. Ours is never pure. And yet God would love us way, way more wildly than all the gods who don't exist. And it means that he is not bound to our deeds. It's not simple math. It's not that we do X and he must do Y. He is, he, he's, his hands are tied if, if we do something and it paints him into a corner. It just doesn't do it. And I know that drives some of you crazy. And I know we'd like for it to be much more simple, but remember to simplify it means you pay. You lose. Better that God be who the Bible says he is instead of who we would like for him to be. Praise God that he says to Ephraim, the worst kid he's got of the 12 who ends up not being named in the new heavens and the new earth, but still there will be those of the tribe of Ephraim there. How can I give you up? I can't, but I must punish you, but I cannot let you go all the way. 
And so we see here the great passion of the Lord our God, again, incomprehensible to us. It is far more provocative than anything else that's been said in Hosea. And some of us don't see it as provocative because we're just not that, we just don't get how much God loves us and really how broken we really are and how much we really do fail. We've tried to reduce it to simple math instead of the covenant love relationship that he desires to have with us. Listen to what uh, Thomas Edward uh, Makamiski says about this. He says, Yahweh looks at his erring child and is overwhelmed by love. He knows that what his rebellious son has done is worthy of expulsion from the house, but he cannot reject him forever. The punishment will not be ultimate. We see the grace of God here as we have not yet seen it in the whole prophecy. Yahweh will not give up his people. But we must remember that there are some of the people who won't make it. They will suffer eternal judgment because they just absolutely refuse, but he's not gonna let them go in toto. Who he elects, who he doesn't, we don't get to decide. Again, his choices seem to be far beyond what I would pick, myself included. I wouldn't pick me. I know me too well. I dang sure wouldn't pick me for this. And maybe you're reconsidering too. But what I know is that he is far more merciful, far more long-suffering, far more of all the things described in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 than I can comprehend, than I can limit. It doesn't always fit my simple math. And praise God. And so as we see this, as we think back on what it is that we think we deserve and what it is that we think the people of Israel really deserved, think about how jarring this message would have been after all they've heard. I'm gonna depart from you. I'm gonna tear you apart like a lion. I'm gonna take away the land. I'm gonna take away your sustenance. I'm gonna take away the priesthood. I'll take away every blessing you have. I'm gonna send you into exile. I'm gonna send the sword. I'm gonna cut off your lineage. I'm gonna depart from you. And yet then they hear, however, I cannot let you go in Toto. I cannot let you drown in full. I cannot let this be the end. Just incomprehensible to us. And for those of us who do think we deserve something, there's something you need to think about. Because so often, I don't even think we think, really think through the implications of some of the things we think. I've embarked on the gargantuan effort to read James Boswell's The Life of Samuel Johnson. That may mean nothing to some of you. It may mean a lot to some of you. It's about a 1,400 or 14 billion page book. I don't know which it is. I'm nowhere near the end, let me just tell you. But but there's a fascinating thing that near Samuel Johnson's conversion or prior to his conversion, he makes this statement. He says, I had often spoken so freely about religion, but ne'er had I thought about it or put any thought into it. I think for some of us, that's our problem. We speak very freely about religion and about the things we think we know. But have we really thought about the full implications and the unintended consequences of some of what we think and what we've allowed to to kind of creep in and truly syncretize our thinking, which may not even be biblical at all. We've just 
It's just in the air we breathe because we've not put the effort and energy into the means of grace and discipleship necessary to grow. Parents, if you think your child has a problem with entitlement, help them to understand the anthropology, the hamartiology, which is the study of sin, uh, the theology, the, the, all of the implications that their belief system, which them thinking they are entitled, includes all that, by the way. They just hadn't really thought about it. It's just inherent. So how do you do that? Well, it's something called catechism. If you're not investing, if you're not sowing into the lives of your children through the means of grace that you have at your disposal, you cannot be totally and completely upset when they don't have anything to combat their college professors or anything to com combat their high school professors or anything to combat their neighbor or anything to combat the person they play lacrosse with or ride dirt bikes with or dance with or whatever it may be. Help them see, at least if you're going to believe it, own it and own it all the way down. And the same goes for many of you. We are called to be disciples. And that is, again, as we said last week, that's not a term that we get to decide what that means. The Bible has already decided what that means. It's whether or not we're going to come around to what it means. Right? Going back to being, if you're a Christian, you are and should be a disciple. And that means that you should be cultivating your, your being a disciple. You should be investing in reading and learning and knowing. Again, you can't say, well, I, just, I don't like to read. That's fine. Read it in small chunks. Go slower. It's amazing what you can accomplish in three to five years. And what it would do for you to actually read through the whole book. And if you do read it, you're going to have questions. And you need to be in community to get those questions answered. It's interesting. Sam Harris, who's a radical anti-theist, says, please Read your Bibles. I guarantee you'll become an atheist. You know what he's saying? He's saying that because it does, it raises questions. And if we don't have a, a, a redemptive historical understanding of how Genesis to Revelation is one story, we call it covenant theology here. If we don't have an understanding of the fullness of that, yeah, there are some real problems. If we don't then try to, in arrogance, if we're too arrogant to get our questions answered, we're too arrogant to be in community and wrestle with these things out loud, well then yes, you will be led astray. It will be confusing. And so it is important for us, if we're going to be good Christian folk, to be disciples who are investing, and each of us is in different phases of life that will look different for each of you, some of you just heard that you're going to have to basically start like listening to seminary. No, that's not what I'm saying. Little by little, it all matters. The, the, the spirit magnifies logarithmically whatever it is you'll put in the dirt, but be putting something into the dirt and watering something. Cultivate something, please, so that you will know how much God loves you. And that you will not be led astray with every wind of doctrine and every whisper of the devil. So, last question I have for you, and I think this is worthy of you guys talking about together on this Lord's Day Sabbath as a family or with friends. How has God evidenced his steadfast love for you despite your failures? 
I want you to think particularly in the moments when you failed, not just any time, because the fact you woke up this morning is evidence of God's love for you. And maybe you, as one of you uh, confessed this morning, failed to go to sleep when you should have, and God yet still let you get up and make it here. And so, uh, so how has God maybe in the midst of when you were the most broken or you had failed, how has God evidenced his steadfast love to you? For many of you, if you're a parent, you've got way more material than you're ever going to need. If you're a college student, you've got way more material than you're ever going to need. If you work, you've got way more material than you're ever going to need. If you drive a car in Cobb County, you've got way more. Paulding County, Cherokee County, the world, uh, <laughs> you've got way more material than you're ever going to need. Um, if you're married, if you've ever tried to love someone else under any circumstance, you've got plenty of material. And so I want you to really think about and be specific in thinking through what's a particular time when you were really broken and God showed his grace to you. Um, we have my son's wedding coming up this Sunday. And uh, he called and asked me to do the prayer over the middle. And you may be thinking, why didn't he ask you to preach it? Because I told him, you need to have somebody you can fire and not have to see at Christmas if it goes bad. Uh, I'll sit with your mom and make sure she behaves. How about that? Uh, but he asked me to do the prayer. And you may be thinking, well, that's kind of rude. No, 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 no. Uh -uh. The, I have a friend who DJs these things. He says, the dad's doing it. It rarely works out if something goes bad. I wasn't willing to risk it. I'll be praying for him. I'll be there. Uh, I'll run support, security, whatever. But, um, but I'm going to do the prayer. And, and again, that sounds subtle, but you don't know the miles we've crossed to get here. You don't know all the blood on the tracks. You don't know all of my failings toward that young man, failing to love him well, failing to show him grace, failing to um, protect him from things when I should have, being too hard when I should have been soft, being too soft when I should have been hard, all of those things. You don't know the colossal failings, but maybe you have a hint because you know me and you know you as a parent. And yet there is going to be great joy. I can't wait to get up and pray. I pray for me that I'm not a blithering crying goofball at this thing. Uh, I want it to be, <laughs> I just, I want to honor him and his, his wife to be Ashley well in this moment. What a gift that I get to speak to the Lord on their behalf, right? And that is an instance that I just can't, I, I don't want to get over. I don't want to ever not talk to my son that I don't walk away going, thank you, Lord. Because at one time, that was just not possible. It didn't seem like anyway. Oh, me of little faith. You may have similar things. Think about them. Give praise to the Lord. So what do we learn from Hosea 11.1 1 through 12.1? First, we often spurn God's gracious attempts to deliver us from the bondage of sin. We just do. He, how many times does he try and we just say, no, thank you very much. I'll take it myself. And though we deserve complete destruction, though we are more than worthy of his judgment, his final judgment, God continues to pursue us in steadfast love. What an amazing thing that he keeps coming after us when we don't deserve it. We've never deserved it. We've never been entitled to his love, and yet he grants it to us. 
so incomprehensibly and provocatively. And what a gift that on this day, as we've talked about this kind of love, that we get to witness a baptism. That we get to see uh, a, a child, a covenant child, uh, as evidence of, the, of Abram's promise, Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, that we get to see that God was at work in the life of this child, Francis Beth DeMar, before Francis knew anything about who God was, that she would be born into so rich a family, a covenant family who loves the Lord their God, imperfect though they may be, pursued though they have been. What a gift that we get to be reminded of our baptism and all that it means. That it, that it means that Jesus died the death that we couldn't, that we, we shouldn't, we don't want to die, but we deserved. And not only did he do that, but he came up out of that grave, that judgment of God's wrath and the totality of our sin to be resurrected. So not only are we granted in baptism, a picture of our complete forgiveness, but now our newness of life. Think Romans 6, how beautiful those words are that baptism means. Now, in this case, it's, it's very important that we understand baptism doesn't save anyone. Sprinkling water on a child or an adult or anybody doesn't save them. It's not the waters that do the saving. It's what the waters signify. Signify the blood of Christ and the cleansing, the setting apart of that child to be raised up to know good anthropology all of their days, good homartiology all of their days, good theology all of their days so that they would know that what they are entitled to is God's wrath because of their sin and that what they get in Christ is God's grace. And it is abundant and lavish and more than they could ever understand. And so may you be reminded of what Christ has done for you as you witness this baptism.